you will, take your Bible and find your place in Jude. It's a little bitty epistle right in front of Revelation. So go to the end of your Bible and go left a little bit. And then put a finger there and then look at... um, Acts 20. Sorry, had a little brain moment there. Acts chapter 20 and Jude is where we're going to be this morning. Um, we're working through this series this summer, and I know every, most people are kind of in flux. You're hitting, you're hitting vacation and, and just different things, and so not everyone is here every Sunday, and so I realize that you're not hearing all of these messages, and you should. And we want you to, and so uh, that's why we record every single week, and so there's multiple ways for you to stay on top with what the, the teaching is on Sunday mornings, whether that's going and watching a full service on our website or just watching the preaching. We also have everything, the preaching, uh, available on, on podcasts and different avenues and platforms such as that. So I want to encourage you, if you've missed one of these messages this summer, to go back and to, uh, to, to catch up because uh, all of this stuff is important as we understand, have a greater understanding of the church and what the Lord Jesus would have us to, uh, to do within the church. Speaking of church, it's natural for humans to fight and squabble. Notice the little nuanced thing I did there, speaking of the church, fighting, because a lot of times we hear that. So think about that. Is it natural for human beings to fight and squabble? Yeah, right? Some of you fought this morning on the way to church, right? You're trying to get the kids out the door, or uh, one spouse was trying to get the other out the door. And so it's, it's natural. It's normal for us to do that. And, and in fact, uh, when we fight, when we squabble, the issue is usually over some area of authority, like who has control of this? Someone's wanting control of that, or someone thinks they have control of that, and, and there's pushback. And so that is what happens, and it's natural. We see this in toddlers. Go to any daycare, and you're going to see a squabble, a fight, a push against authority in the daycare. You go to a senior executive sitting in a board meeting. The same thing is going to happen there. Fights and squabbles are normal. We find it in the halls of Congress and the White House. It's equally prevalent, as we've said, in every home and in every relationship. Therefore, it should not surprise us to also see at times fights and squabbles within the church. That that there would be disagreement, that there would be pushback, and, and that there would be a jostling over control. Who's in control of the church? Many times the disagreements will unfortunately lead to a split within their church, and we would never want that to happen, but that happens. Uh, sometimes uh, people joke that in the Baptist church, the way we plant churches is through church splits. That's not a good testimony to the Baptist church or any church for that matter, but it happens. Fights and squabbles are always over control and authority. And so for this reason, it's important and it's constructive for us to know and to recognize authority in the church. And that's what we're talking about this morning. You know, my, lo- my wife loves to point out uh, one aspect of God, and that is that he is a God of order. He's not the God of chaos. He's not the God of disorder. He's the God of order. We see it in creation. We see it all throughout the word of God, that God is a God of 
order. His creation is orderly. He has given a pattern there, and he's constructed and formed the church in a likewise manner. Today, as we're continuing this series uh, on the church, or talking about in the church, uh, really a, a sermon series on the doctrine of ecclesiology, we've already touched on four Areas. We've talked about mission, we've talked about membership, we've talked about attendance, and last Sunday we talked about discipline in the church. This morning we're going to add to that, and we're going to talk about authority. You see, the Bible's going to remind us that Jesus is Lord over his local church, and he's authorized different offices for different things. The question of authority arises anytime God's people seek to decide on a matter. If you've been in church long enough, you have probably seen and witnessed some of that bickering or disagreement is probably a nicer way to put it back and forth. And so some of you might have actually sat in members meetings at this church or other churches over the years where things got really tense and, and basically you went to church, but a fight broke out. That sort of thing happens there. Because anytime we're discussing a change or making a decision, the question of authority comes into play. There's all kinds of questions out there for us to wrestle with. There's all kinds of decisions there out there for us to make. So the question comes down to who is supposed to make the decisions in the church? Because in reality, this is a real struggle. As we're seeking to live and to be at peace with one another. As we're seeking to preserve the unity within the church. Let me give you two quick thoughts to note before we look into what the Bible has to say about authority. First of all is this. Denominations and theological traditions will give different answers to the question that we're asking. Who's in charge of the church? You go to any denomination, they're going to give you a slightly different answer. Presbyterians are going to say the elders are in charge. Um, the Roman Catholic Church is going to say ultimately the Pope is in charge. If you go to a, um, a regular evangelical church, they're going to say the congregation is in charge. Or maybe they say the pastor's in charge or the deacons are in charge. They're going to come at it from different ways. And so this morning, I just want you to know that as we walk through this, these texts, in, in the New Testament, what I'm going to be presenting to you is a uniquely Baptist approach and a uniquely Baptist uh, understanding of church polity, church governance, the authority that's within the church. Now, I, with that said, I, I want to make clear that I'm not just sharing this with you because I am a Southern Baptist pastor and I've spent most of my years in a Southern Baptist church, and so I understand this tradition. I, I hope that I'm... Um, open-minded enough and, and studied enough that I've looked at all of the ideas and variations and weighed them against Scripture and came up with what I believe is the best example. That's exactly what I've done. And so what I'm sharing with you this morning as we look at Scripture, our inter understanding of these things, I believe it's the best interpretation of what the Word of God lays out before us. The second thing I want you to note is that every church, even the most mature and well-ordered, sometimes struggles with disunity and hurt feelings between members. It just happens, right? It just happens. Happens in your friendships, happens in your family, happens in your workplace. 
Things like that happen because we're sinful people. And while we may be followers of Jesus Christ and we have exchanged the old life for a new life, we're walking in Jesus Christ, there is still enough of that old man, that old flesh, and its selfishness that wants to always raise its ugly head and start a fight, right? So, so we're always struggling against that in the church, no matter how mature or well-ordered we may be. So we want to, in light of that, deal with sins, deal with bitterness, deal with disunity in a healthy and redemptive way that's preserving the unity that God has given us in Jesus Christ. So those two things I want you to keep in mind. Now, let's address the elephant in the room. Who's in charge? Who's in charge of this congregation? Have you ever thought about that? Who's in charge? Is it the pastor, the senior pastor, the ministry staff? Is it the elders? Is it the deacons? Is it the membership? Who's in charge at Red Lane Baptist Church that meets at 2095 Red Lane Road in Powhatan, Virginia? Here's the simple answer to that question. The one who's in charge of this local church is Jesus Christ. That's the simple answer. You see, Jesus is the one, as God the Son, who came to this earth and died on a cross, paying the penalty for sin and giving his righteousness to sinners and then forming them into his church. He's the one that sets at the head. He's the one who controls and leads. He is king. He rules over it by his word. In the Bible, we see that Jesus is the one who gave the church its mission. Jesus is the one who has instructed how the church's members should relate to one another. Jesus is the one who's explained how to keep the church pure. We talked about that last week as we looked at Matthew 18. Jesus is the one who has ordered its instruction. Things that were to, are to be taught and things that are not to be taught. So Jesus sets the rules and he's the one who orders our life together. So the simple answer to the question, who's in charge of this place, is Jesus. Now, that's the Bible study Sunday school answer, right? We, we agree. I heard a, a roaring amen when I made that statement early. We agree that Jesus is in charge, but pragmatically on a day-to-day -day basis on the functional level, the answer to that question is a little bit more complex. So who's in charge of the church? Because Jesus, as we're going to see, has authorized different offices for different things. So seeking to answer this question of who's in charge, we have to first ask a question that says, in charge of what? Who's in charge of what? Who's in charge of making the decisions of whether or not we're going to get red carpet or gray carpet? Who's in, the, who's in charge of making the decision of whether or not we're going to support this church plant or do no church plants? Who's in charge of deciding of where we're going to bring this staff member on? Or who we're going to elevate to this role as deacon or elder? Who's making those decisions? As we read through the pages of the New Testament, what we discover is that sometimes the instruction given to us in the Word of God is given to certain people for certain roles. Sometimes the Word of God will speak to the whole congregation and, and, and gives us the impression that the membership has charge of the church. And then at other times, you'll see, and we'll see this, that the Word of God is speaking to specific men, the elders of the church, and laying, them, laying before them instruction for how they're to lead and to rule and to oversee the local church. So the Word of God gives us 
this idea that Jesus has put in charge of his church various offices for various situations and reasons. So what we see in all of this is that there's a level of cooperation in authority. Let me give you two levels of authority this morning. I've tried to um, scale back on my notes. I'm two pages shorter than normal. So I'm trying to scale back this morning to make sure that you can make it to lunch. Let me give you two cooperating levels of authority. Number one is the congregation. The first level of authority that cooperates is the congregation. So you've got your finger there in Jude. Let's read beginning in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who were called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Skip down to verse 17. But you, re- you must remember, beloved, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, what's going on here in this letter? What's Jude saying? First, we see here in the first four verses that Judas is calling, or Jude, I should say, not Judas. Jude is calling for the local church to contend for the faith and warns them of the danger coming from within their membership. Did you catch that? That, that, he's, that, that they're saying that people have snuck in unnoticed. So he's warning them of this danger coming from within their membership as certain people are perverting the gospel. Then in verses 5 through 16, verses which we did not read, he provides a history uh, of this apostasy. He goes back through the lineage and the history of Israel, God's people, and he talks about the apostasy showcasing rebellion among the professing people and God's subsequent judgment against them says they participated in Korah's rebellion. If you know that story, what happened in Korah's rebellion, as they stood against Moses, the ground opened and swallowed them up. So their rebellion against authority was met with the judgment of God as they were sunk in the earth. That's what's happening in the church. And we read in verses 17 through 23, there he reminds us of the protections that come from guarding the gospel. I want you to know there are three main responsibilities of the church as the people of God seek to guard that great confession. That that confession of faith that we looked at before in Matthew 16 when Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. That's the confession, that's the belief, that's the faith that we hold as a church. And we gotta guard that. So after Peter made that confession, Jesus indicated that it was on that 
profession, that confession of faith, that he would build his church. And he gave the church the keys of the kingdom so that the church now has the authority literally to be that spokesman for heaven, just like Jesus. And so let's look how the church, the congregation guards the gospel. Three responsibilities. Number one, we find this responsibility in membership. The local church that Jude here is addressing had members who had crept in unnoticed. We see that they perverted the grace of God and turned it into sensuality and denied Jesus Christ. And so based on this description of these people, we're led to believe that these people were not disciples of Jesus. They had a profession of faith, but their profession did not match their practice of life. Reminded of a few weeks ago, That the Bible presupposes regenerate church membership. In other words, that if you're a member of a church, the idea, the understanding is that you're in relationship with Jesus Christ. You're not joining the uh, Rotary Club. You're not joining a political action committee. No, you're joining the family of God, which means you have to be in the family. So it presupposes regenerate church membership. There are times when a person says the right things, but the heart's never with them. So that must have been the case here with the church that Jude is addressing and the situation there. So a church member who has turned from his or her sin, turned to Christ in faith, repented and received forgiveness of sin and new life, that is a person who is a candidate for membership in the local church. And the church has the responsibility of guarding the gospel by defending the church door. Now, this morning as you came in, I don't think you saw a guard there you know, with an M4 struck, strapped across the chest and body armor and kind of stood there all, all buff and scary. You didn't see that as you came this morning, right? We're very sneaky. We hit them. But they're there. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm trying to understand my context in Powhatan. When I talk about guarding the door, we're talking about membership. We're not talking about who can come. All are welcome to come and worship with us and among us. But to join this family of faith, you have to first come into relationship with Jesus Christ. And so that's why we must take membership so seriously. That's why we stressed it so strongly a few weeks ago. That's why we talked about discipline last week. And we're going to get to that in just a moment again. But the church has a responsibility of guarding the gospel by defending the door into the church. Church is the one that affirms the person's profession of faith. We do that through baptism and membership. And then the congregation works together to care for and disciple its members. So the first responsibility of the congregation is membership. The second responsibility is that of discipline. The discipline structure that's laid out there in Matthew 18 provides us as a church with a blueprint for guarding the gospel, but not allowing sin to take root and to spread. Right? Jesus says, hey, if a brother has sinned against you, go to him. Talk about the situation. Call him to his Uh, Call him to repentance and faith, and if he doesn't repent, then take a brother or two brothers with you. If they're still not, move it up the chain. Finally, you get to the whole church dealing with it. What's the point in all this? It's redemptive and and transformative for that individual, but it's also guarding the church because you don't want the sin in one brother's life to spread to others' lives and ruin the whole church and the testimony of the church. So Jude's appeal here to be built up in faith, prayer, and love for God in verse 20 and 21 highlights this idea of discipline 
as a responsibility in the congregation. So this church has the responsibility of guarding the gospel through discipline. So when a brother or sister refuses to sin, the church, listen, is duty-bound to lovingly pursue that individual with a call to repentance. And moving on up, if there's still no repentance, then we remove membership and the Lord's Supper from that individual. And the goal is always repentance and restoration. So that's a second responsibility of the congregation, that of discipline. Thirdly, it's doctrine. The church is responsible for defining what it believes the Bible teaches and hold one another to that standard. You see, as a church, we have a connections class, and if you want to join us as a member, you have to go through that class. Why? It's because we want you to know who we are and what we believe. That's one of the reasons for that. And that's a great opportunity for you to learn and ask questions and, and, and really get an understanding of what our doctrine is, what is our theology, what is our practice. It's important that we know those things because everyone has an interpretation of the Bible. And this is what happens in the life of the church. I could look out here and I could just begin to tell, uh, or not really tell stories, but I could begin to paint the picture of the multiplicity of backgrounds you have religiously. You're coming from Catholic background, you're coming from Anglican background, you're coming from Episcopalian background, you're coming from Independent Baptist background, Assembly of God background, some of you are coming from just stark, uh, secularist, atheist type background. And, and so if we took all those strains and put them in here and just kind of churned it up, what do we have? Someone said a mess, I think is what I heard. Yeah, kind of be a mess. So we got to know, really what happens is, our doctrine would continually be shifting by who's in the church at that point. So we have to understand what it is that we believe the Bible teaches and hold one another to that standard. So the church is responsible for its doctrine. And it carries out this duty primarily by appointing pastors and elders. That's a slash between the two who will teach the Bible faithfully. That's why elders... And ministry staff are so important in the life of the church. And then with that, when an elder or a teacher in the church begins to teach something that's not within the doctrine of the church, it is the responsibility of the congregation to step in and remove that teacher-elder because that person has transgressed the doctrine of the church. So you're preserving and guarding the gospel in that. So the church guards the gospel by overseeing its doctrine. Jude here in verse 3 asserts that they contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So, congregation is given authority over these three areas. As you read through the Bible, you see that it says much about leadership in the local church. Here's what you're going to notice in that if you did an exhaustive study. In every case, it's talking about a congregational church. It's assuming a congregational context. For instance, read through the epistles. Most of them are addressed to churches, not individuals, right? Ephesians, Galatians, Thessalonians, one and two, two letters to the church in Corinth. You've got Colossians. You've got all of these letters written to churches and not to individuals. Even Jude here is writing to, I believe, a church, an unnamed church, but he's not writing to one person. He's talking to brothers and sisters, members of a church. And so, these letters 
are instructing the church on how to live and to carry out the duties of the faith. Jesus, even when giving instructions on how to deal with sin, put the final judgment not into the uh, leader's hands. He put it into the church's hands. He says, bring it to the church. It's interesting that he doesn't place it in the hands of maybe what we would call bishop today or a pope or a presbytery or a convention, a sign-on, a conference, of the deacons or a committee. Oh, Lord, help them. Don't put it in the hands of a committee. <laughs> place the authority in the church. So the local congregation is the final authority. It bears the responsibility of affirming new members, selecting its leaders, maintaining church discipline, and upholding sound doctrine. Who's in charge of the church? You are. We are. Because I'm a member of the congregation too. So the congregation is in authority. The second component in this cooperating level of authority is the elders. You got your place there in Acts chapter 20. Let's begin reading in verse 17. Now, from Miletus, he, that's Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, now, I want you to skip down to verse 28, because we're not going to get into all that other stuff. Uh, it's not pertinent to what we're looking at, <clears throat> excuse me, this morning. Verse 28, he says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, contextually here, what's happening is Paul is headed back to Jerusalem after his third, what we call the third missionary journey. Uh, don't have time to get into the, all the details of what's awaiting him in Jerusalem. That's not important for our discussion this morning. But he's traveling back to Jerusalem and on his way, knowing he's probably never going to see these brothers again. He calls for the elders from the church in Ephesus. So he doesn't go to Ephesus, which would have been a little bit north of him. He ports in Miletus, and he calls. He sends a courier up there to Ephesus and says, Brothers, come down. I need to spend some time with you. And they come down, and he begins to strengthen them. He spoke of a very real danger to the church, one in which they were to guard the church against. Therefore, what we see here, like the congregation authority, the elders are responsible for guarding the gospel. He says, when I, when I uh, depart, there will come fierce wolves who are going to prey on the sheep. So guard against that. So how does an elder guard against the wolves? Three responsibilities. Number one, teach the word. Teach the word. See, the primary thing that distinguishes elders from the rest of the congregation and deacons is that component right there, teaching. Teaching. You'll see it in 1 Timothy 3. You'll see it in other places. Uh, the elders must be able to teach. Why? Because they're holding the doctrine of the church. So teaching is the primary role of elders. Look with me, or, or just listen, as I read 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. 
Paul says this to Timothy. He says, besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house. That's chapter 5, sorry. I was like, that doesn't sound right. The lights on my Bible make very difficult to read. That's why a lot of times I step out here so I can turn it up, and I don't see all the little creases in my Bible. So that's my excuse for missing the chapter. Verse 13. Until I come, he says, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Did you notice how many times he mentioned teaching when he's given this last instruction to Timothy? So in addition to teaching the word to the church, elders are to protect the church from false teaching. So we're to teach the word and we're to guard the church against false teaching. This was Paul's point to these Ephesian elders back in Acts chapter 20. He warned them of the dangers of false doctrine. So elders guard the church Guard the gospel in the church by faithfully teaching the word. Secondly, they model obedience to the word. Here's a good life principle. Practice always follows one's principles. Think about that. What you say you believe, you only believe if you practice. So if you say, man, I believe the word of God, but you never obey it, you do not believe the word of God. If you say you love Jesus Christ, but you're not following his word, you do not love Jesus Christ. If you say you're committed to the church, but you're never with the church, serving in the church, participating in the life of the church, you do not love the church. Right? Practice follows principle. And principle should enforce our practice. So the wolves that he speaks of in Acts 20 and the twisted things that he speaks warns against... They were to model something different than they were to model obedience to the word when those who were twisting and praying on the church would give them a different perspective, a different look. Go back to Jude, Jude's case here, the ungodly people, he says, had perverted the grace of God into sensuality. And so what we see in the Bible's teaching on elders is that elders have to be different. The reason there's such such a lengthy description of the qualifications for both elders and deacons is because there should be some modeling in the lives of those who are leading that others can look at and say, that's the way I need to be. If I'm going to be like Jesus, I've got to follow what that guy's doing, right? What did Paul say? Follow me as I follow Christ. So it's not a worship of the individual, but it's an emulation because you see something of Jesus in them and you want to emulate it and model it in your own life. So our teaching is affirmed by our practice that is of elders. So for this reason, think about the the list of qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Maybe you're familiar with that. If you read through those things, what's, what's the one thing that stands out the most? I would say how practical they are, right? Oversees his house well, loves his wife well. I'm using my own interpretation of it, right? My own hermeneutic here. Uh, Not a drunkard, um, financially responsible, not violent, not given to rage. This common 
things that should be characteristic of anyone who names the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior. So elders are supposed to be good examples for the church to look at and to emulate. So if you want elders who are going to lead you into truth and help you stay close to Jesus, then you're going to need to have elders that model obedience to the Word of God. Third responsibility is that they give oversight to the church. Listen again to Acts 20, verse 28. Paul says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. 1 Timothy 5, 17. Paul says, Let the elders who rule, rule well. Be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. These passages and others, what do they tell us about elders? They tell us that the elders oversee the affairs of the church. So who's in charge? The congregation's in charge. Who's in charge? The elders are in charge. So we as a church back in 2015, in June of 2015, moved or officially adopted the polity that we now have where we have a plurality of elders that serve as the leaders of our church. The congregation affirmed that and the congregation is the one that affirms our elders. But the elders carry out Many, in many ways, the day-to-day operations and the needs of the church, working through the staff, working through deacons, working through ministry teams. But the elders are guarding the gospel by giving oversight to the church. And all of this authority is to be carried out in an orderly fashion. As some of it is seated in the leadership of the congregation to shepherd the flock, as well as in the elders. But ultimately, it's the congregation that makes the decisions. It's the congregation and not the pastors and elders. It's not the deacons. It's not the staff. It's not committees or small group leaders or ministry team leaders. The congregation always has the final say. And so leadership and the body ought to work together. You think about this, you might say, well, this is nothing more than a democratic body. I'd say it's not a democratic body. Then you might go to the other extreme and say, well, this is nothing more than an aristocracy. I'd say it's not that at all. It's not a dictatorship. No, what happens here is you have elders that are leading as leaders, but they're submitting themselves to the congregation. And you have a congregation that's submitting themselves to the leadership of the leaders. Is that not how the Christian life is to be lived on all fronts? In a few weeks, uh, Steve is going to be preaching, and he's going to be talking about how we can love one another in the church. He's going to more likely deal with a number of one another clauses that we see throughout the New Testament. One of those is we must submit to one another. And that's the authority that comes. Congregation and elders working together to bring order and strength to the church, guarding the gospel. If you want to know the polity, what it's called that we practice here at Red Lane, it's called elder-led congregationalism. I know that will um, go right over your head. Probably don't care about that. But that's what it's called. Elders are leading and the congregation is affirming. This is my third church to pastor as a senior pastor. I've been on staff in many other churches over the years. I've seen my fair share of bad members meetings. In those churches, we called them business meetings because that's really all they, some of those, that's all they really wanted to do is just talk business. It wasn't, more, it wasn't a whole lot about ministry. 
And so I've sat in those meetings as the senior pastor and wondered. I remember on a number of occasions, uh, one particular church, people coming in for a members meeting, and it always made me uncomfortable, and I had no idea who they were, right? You guys probably know what I'm talking about. You're like, where did, they, where did these people come from? And they're, they're, I'd ask them, who is that? They'd be, oh, that's Joe Blow and his wife, yeah, yeah. They're, they're members here. They've been members here since 1943. I hadn't darkened the door since 1977, but they're here tonight. And so I'm thinking, well, I guess I'm made to pack my bags and my family's moving on because I'm getting canned tonight. But it never happened. But I've sat through those meetings. I've sat through those times in the church where it was a fight. It was a struggle over who is in charge. Maybe you've sat in those meetings as well. And you've seen that sad stain that's just a blight on the... T- testimony of the local church, the name it gives you in the community. If we're honest this morning, Red Lane has had some of that history over the years. We're 177 or so years old. You're going to have some of that over the years. I remember when I came almost eight years ago, we didn't have the greatest name in the community. Here's what I found out when I first came. They either had no idea anything about Red Lane Baptist or it was negative. There wasn't a lot of positive that I would find. That's not the case anymore. You see, we've changed. We've evolved. I'm not saying anything bad about what was in the past. We just went through a a rough season as a church there, and we didn't have the greatest name, but now we do. Why is it? It's because I believe we have the right authority. Our congregation knows the Bible, believes the Bible, and seeks to practice the Bible, and our leadership are doing the same thing. And we're working in harmony. You see, I have no no, no ill will toward any of y'all. Right, as, as one of the elders in our church, and I think I can speak on behalf of our other elders, we love our congregation, we believe in our congregation, and we trust our congregation, and I think you guys do the same thing for us. What does that do for us? It makes us unified and healthy, and that just breeds life, and the community can see it. But in all, all honesty, to disagree is to be human. Fights, squabbles are going to be the normal, the natural part of life. We shouldn't be surprised because of that when we see them in the church. God has ordered the church. He structured the church in a way that we can deal with those in a healthy and redemptive manner. He's authorized the congregation and her elders to lead, to preserve, and to guard the gospel and its testimony. So for this reason, we ought to honor, obey, and submit ourselves under the leadership of the elders in our church And I'm one of those elders, but I submit myself under those men. Likewise, we ought to take our membership seriously and participate in the responsibilities of the congregation to guard the gospel through membership, through discipline, and through doctrine. Pastor, do you mean that as a member of Red Lane Baptist Church, I need to come to members' meetings? That's exactly what I mean. That's the most boring thing that I could ever set through. Yeah, maybe, but it's important. What do we do at members' meetings? We voted new members. We're guarding the door of the church. You might say, well, they're always uh, 100% voted in. That's because we have a rigorous process that you ought to trust so that when a person stands up before the church, you can confidently vote. But you don't have to vote for them, right? 
You have the choice. If you know something that no one else knows about their life, we need to know that on the front end. So we need to be a part of members' meetings because that's how one of the ways we guard the door of the church. That's how we preserve our doctrine and our testimony. So membership is a big deal for us as members, and you participate in that. As elders, we don't determine who joins this church. We make a recommendation that we've talked with this person, we've heard their testimony, we've understood as best as we can their doctrinal positions and beliefs, and we think, we think that they're a good candidate for membership. But it's the church's decision. What else do we do in members' meetings? We affirm those who are serving in various leader positions, right? If you're going to serve on a committee, we're going to have that all next month. Or not all, but at the end of next month, we're going to have our annual members meeting where we affirm those who are going to serve on our six committees. That's a church decision. That's not an elder decision. That's not even a committee's decision that appoints them. They recommend. The nominating committee recommends who should serve on personnel, finance, grounds, building, policy, and nominating. I think I got all this right. I'm good. Good. That's a church decision. So you need to participate in that. Discipline. Elders don't discipline. The church does. And so we need to take sin seriously in our lives. And we can't take sin seriously if we're not willing to participate in that. You say, well, I don't want to get into that ugliness. That's a fact of life. And we need to get into those dirty, difficult spaces from time to time and deal with that. And we can't do that effectively if it's only 40 of us showing up because our membership is way bigger than that. Right? So I'm trying to encourage you this morning to lean into your membership in the way you ought to lean into it because it's important. You are part of the authority order structure that God has so designed for his bride to represent his grace to this community. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this morning, we want to thank you for your church. We're thankful for those that you've called out from this world of sinfulness and given new life in your son. Lord, as we thank you for your church, we also recognize that we're a part of that church. Those of us who have faith into Jesus. Father, as such, we want to be a people that know your word, that believe your word, and that practice your word. Even in this, what may seem to be, to be a very mundane and just non-interesting area of Christian life, church authority and church participation and all of those things. And yet, God, it breeds such life when we do it well. And so I pray this morning that the words that we've looked at in your scripture would stay with us. And would you help us to understand and to appreciate and, and to treasure that much more what it means to be a part of the church. God, I pray that it would lead us to pray for our elders, pray for those in leadership over us, our ministry staff that are leading our ministry areas. God, that we would lean into that and, and understand the need that we need to pray for those who are leading us, that we need to encourage them, that we need to lift them up and bless them. God, the word that we see in the scripture tells us to honor them. Help us to do that. 
Help us to do that. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.